looking at those stars, I felt like I was not only part of the stars, but part of nature, part of the cosmos. And I had this very weird sensation of time getting compressed to a dot. I, I felt like I was falling into infinity. I'm Carolyn Hadlock, Executive Creative Director at Young and Laramore, and this is The Beautiful Thinkers Project, a podcast where I ask founders, creators, leaders, and visionaries how they bring their ideas to life. As we enter these conversations with thinkers across disciplines like art, science, and business, we'll learn a little bit more about the practices and identifiers that create beautiful thinking, something defined so individually, but so universally recognizable. Welcome to The Beautiful Thinkers Project. Today I'm talking with Alan Lightman, who is a novelist, essayist, physicist, and educator. Currently he is the professor of the humanities at MIT, and he wrote one of my favorite books, uh, which is Einstein's Dreams, and I'm very, very excited to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Carolyn. I think one of the things that makes you very unique is your background and your career, both on the science end, but then also on the humanities end. So. I know you came from your father owned a movie theater and your mother was Mm -hmm. a dance teacher and a volunteer braille typist. So how did growing up with that set of parents um, form you and and put you on the path that you are today? My parents were both very open-minded. I would use the word liberal, although I know that that's politically charged, especially in today's environment. But open-minded to new ideas and that made me feel like I could do anything I wanted. They, they did not push me into joining the family business, which was movie theaters. Neither one of my parents was a scientist, but they certainly encouraged me to do what I wanted to do. And I developed an interest in both the sciences and the arts from an early age. I had some friends who got excited about doing their math homework every night and other friends who who wrote poetry. And I seemed to be able to move back and forth between the two groups of friends without any trouble, but also without thinking that I had two groups of friends. Did you ever feel like you were taken less seriously in one world or the other because of both, or did it contribute, or how did that work for you? I think what has been important to me And a lot of young people who have an interest in both the sciences and the arts come and ask me for advice. What I believe is that it's very important to be well grounded in at least one discipline. That even though at some point you may become interdisciplinary, you may start mixing poetry with engineering or whatever, to be taken seriously and really to be good at what you do, you need to go deeply into at least one field. And so even though as a youngster, I recognized that I had interests in both the science and the arts, I built rockets and also wrote, I wrote poetry. I did know that when I got to graduate school uh, that I needed to really deepen myself in the sciences. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did that worked out very well for me because I was always taken seriously as a scientist. But of course, to be an artist, you, you don't necessarily need formal training yeah. in the arts. You just need to do it. 
and to learn from other artists. And so I, I did that. I had a long period where I was reading lots of other writers and trying to absorb what they were doing and writing stories of my own. And so I did sort of pay my dues as a writer later on. Yeah. And this is something that I think is one of the lost arts is actually writing in whatever field that you hailed from. You helped institute a new communication requirement at MIT, which required all undergraduates to have some equivalent of writing or speaking each of their four years. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little, a little bit, how you came to that, and then mm-hmm. what impact that had on the, on the students? Mm-hmm. About 20 years ago or so, I might have the date slightly wrong, at MIT, which is one of the world's temples of technology, yeah. some of us on the faculty began concerned that our students were not writing up to snuff. And we actually did a survey of various companies that employed our graduates and asked them what were the skills that they most valued for incoming employees. And almost all of them put communication skills at the top of the list, even engineering firms. And so that was the, the leverage that we used in getting the entire faculty to agree to a new communication requirement that we could, we could practically translate communication skills into dollars and cents. That's amazing. And then you, you said, I don't know at what point in your life you said this, but I liked this quote where you said, I love physics, but what was most important to me was living a creative life. When did you say that and, and how, how has that been for you? Right. I was a graduate student in physics, and this was the early to mid-1970s. When you're a graduate student in one of the sciences, you have to eat and sleep your scientific research day and night, 24-7. I mean, it's very intense. And I realized that that all of my fellow graduate students, or most of them, were probably going to have careers as professional physicists for the rest of their lives. Yeah. And what I realized is that I did not have to be a physicist for the rest of my life, but what was enormously important to me was to live a creative life. And what did that mean to you, living a creative life? It's it's a combination of going deep into yourself and being open to the world around you, uh, being willing to challenge conventions. I love that. Um, okay, so fast forward to 2016 is when I believe you wrote this, the book Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. Talk about that moment, if you don't mind. The moment in the boat. Yeah, the moment in the boat. Yeah. My wife and I have lived on a, on a small island in Maine for the last 30 years. She's a painter. Oh, nice. So it's a perfect place for, for creative people. The island has only six families on it, and everybody has their own boat. And so one night I was coming back from the mainland to the island in my boat. It was very light, late. I think it might have been after midnight. It was a very clear night. And the stars were shimmering in the sky. Of course, there was nobody else on the water. And I was, I mean, I could see the island, but I was not that close to it. And I decided that because it was such a beautiful night, I turned off the uh, the engine of the boat. No sound, no light from the boat. And I lay down in, in the boat and just on my back and looked up at the sky. 
I had a feeling that's, that I imagine many people have had if you're in a very, if you have a very dark sky, and the stars are out and you look up at the sky, I, I felt like I was falling into infinity. Looking at those stars, I felt like I was part of them, not only part of the stars, but part of nature, part of the cosmos. And I had this very weird sensation of time getting compressed to a dot of, of the infinite past long before I was born and the infinite future long after I will be dead, all compressed to a dot. And it was an amazing sensation. I don't know how long I lay in the boat like that. I, I, my body had dissolved into the sky. I realized that even though I'm a scientist, that that kind of experience cannot be reduced to zeros and ones. Mm -hmm. e even though I, I do think that we're all material, um, I, I do think that even if you had connected all of my 100 billion neurons to a giant computer and read out all of the electrical impulses at that moment, that it would not have explained the feeling I had of being connected to the cosmos and of dissolving into the sky. I think that they're just experiences that we have that, that are not explainable in terms of that material. So, so this is sort of a, a nether world between materialism and spirituality. In fact, I, I even call myself a, a spiritual materialist. What's been the reaction from the from the science world on that? Because it challenges a lot of thinking, I would imagine. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. If you ask me point blank, and one of my colleagues might have done so, do you believe in the supernatural, mm -hmm. which are things that in, intrinsically cannot be explained by the laws of science and can never be explained by the laws of science? I would say, no, I do not believe in the supernatural. I do think that the material in our brains, for example, is capable of producing extraordinary experiences. There's something in science and especially in physics called emergent phenomena. And um, emergent phenomena is a phenomena of a complex system that cannot be understood just by analyzing its individual parts. If you take a bunch of fireflies that suddenly congregate in a field at night, initially they're going to flash on and off randomly like Christmas tree lights. But after about a minute, this amazing phenomenon occurs where they all start flashing in synchrony. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's an example of an emergent phenomenon. Even if we studied a single firefly exhaustively and knew all the the anatomy of a firefly and all of its biochemistry, that still would not explain how it is that a group of fireflies all come into synchrony and they're flashing. Our brain is like a hundred billion fireflies. There, there are qualitative sensations from that hundred billion neurons that emerge from the complexity of the system and cannot be understood by understanding just a single neuron. Yeah. Do you think part of the moment in the boat was because you were floating and just because you didn't have the forces of gravity? Well, that's a good question. But, well, I did have the force of, force of gravity because I felt 
the bottom of the boat pushing up on my back. I mean, I wasn't really floating, but there was nothing from the external world that was impinging on me. There were no sounds or motions from the outside world. It was just this vision of the star-spangled sky. And of course, if you're lying on, on your back looking up, it's like being very, very close to a, to a movie theater screen. It was my entire visual field. I wonder, using your fireflies metaphor, that, and you said that it really wasn't the external things that created that experience, but maybe it was just your internal self was all your neurons were firing. So it was actually something that seems like it was the outside, but it wasn't something inside of you. Yes, very possibly so. It's interesting, though. It makes me wonder, because I know you talked a lot about inner life and exterior, and I know you wrote an article where you said the virus is a reminder of something we lost long ago. Yeah. Is that, that interior life, What? how does that relate to that comment? Yeah. Well, I, I think that since the Industrial Revolution and possibly before, that, that the pace of life has been speeding up and getting faster and faster and faster. A literal documentation of how fast modern life has come or how much it's speeded up is a study done by the British Council and I think in 30 or 40 cities and show that in, in recent years, the speed of walking has increased by 10%. I mean, there's no doubt that we're, that we're moving faster than we did 50 years ago. And 50 years ago, we were moving faster than we did 100 years ago. I think the speed of life has always been regulated by the speed of business, which has been regulated by the speed of communication. And in the 19th century, or say 1840 or 50, the high-speed communication device was the telegraph, which could transmit about three bits per second. Then 1985, when the internet first appeared, the speed of communication was about a thousand bits per second. Today, it's a billion bits per second. And I think that has left much less time for quiet reflection and the examination of our inner life. And I, I think we really need that quiet time to think about who we are and what our values are and where we're going. Yeah. You know, do, do you have priorities in your life? Do you have values? Are you living out those values? The frantic pace of modern life has really damaged that needed ability, that needed quiet time. So as we look at this time and we think about this as, you know, I don't know how we'll refer to it as the great pause, you know, but right. if you think about time and it's kind of stood still or maybe at minimum, there's a reset. It seems like now is the time to take advantage of that. Yes, I totally agree with that. I mean, there, there are those of us like the healthcare workers and the fire people and people yeah. work in grocery stores who haven't been able to slow down. And I salute all of those people. But many of us have been able to slow down or have been forced to slow down because of the pandemic. And if there's anything positive that comes out of the pandemic, it might be the realization 
that that life is better at a slower pace. Yeah. You can begin by taking 30 minutes a day with no goals. You know, leave your to-do list aside, leave your phone somewhere, turn it off, put it in a drawer, and just take 30 minutes with no particular destination and see how that feels. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. Um, do you think that having the writing side and the humanity side has made you a more imaginative scientist? I don't know. It's, it's, it's the chicken and egg problem. It, it may be that, that I always had this imaginative side of me at the same time that I always had the scientific side for me and, and sort of because they were both part of me from the beginning that, that I would automatically do science that was more imaginative. Now, I'm, I'm certainly would never present myself as a great scientist. I think that I have been a good scientist, but not a great scientist. But in my scientific work, I, I do think that I have done things that I consider to be on the imaginative side. And I think that, that many good scientists do imaginative things. I, I think that good science is a creative activity. And it's not just following a rote textbook, but it's actually visualizing physical phenomena and thinking about how things might work and then quantifying that. Yeah. Is that, is that part of what took you to write Einstein's Dreams back when you did? I mean, I got it back when you published it. Somebody gave it to me. And it's a book that I have since gifted to a lot of creatives because I thought it was interesting that I was reading a book by a scientist that made me feel more creative. The, the title of that book came to me first, Einstein's Dreams. And those two words juxtaposed together seem to me to represent the, the artistic intuitive side of me and the, the scientific rational side of me that I've had since being a child. That, that Einstein, of course, is the symbol, the greatest icon of our rational side. And dreams represent our intuitive side. And I began thinking of how can I flesh this out? I think that the worlds of the dream worlds of time in which time has slowed down and which we we live in the moment that those dream worlds mean more to me now or that concept of time means more to me now I mean the book came out 30 years ago or something you know I've had many life experiences since then and have hopefully matured somewhat and I have become more aware of the the damage done by our frantic pace of life. And so looking back at the book now, I think that the chapters that dealt with living in the moment mean more to me now. Than they did then. Yeah, I was just reading this morning, The Nows and the Laters, which, mm -hmm. is, which was one of my favorites. I was thinking as I was driving to this interview today, I read one of your first published fiction books, and then I read, I know you've written one since Searching for Stars, but it was really interesting just to mm -hmm. see the same person write these two very different experiences and, and come to it in a very different way. 
Do you think it was the same person who wrote those two books? No, I would have said no. You would say no? I would say no. Because I think what you just said is like Einstein's dreams was very metaphorical and symbolic, but it, but it was uh, very certain. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Searching for stars has a lot more questions. Yeah. You know, and I think that's just a, a sign of evolution in itself. You know, I think a lot of us start with all the answers and then we, we get older and then we go, oh, no, I actually have more questions than answers. Well, that's a very astute observation of yours. You know, all of us change throughout our lives. And I think every 10 years, we're, we're different people to some extent. I think that, that both books have a, have a philosophical underpinning. Yeah, for sure. And even though Einstein's Dreams is written in this very declarative manner, where, where each statement is stated with, with certainty, there is a philosophical dimension to the book. It's a fascinating backbone. But I do think about this a lot because I think the question, well, the, the only answer to your question, is it, is it the same person? The answer, of course, is no, because it's all relative. Yeah. Because you're a different person now, 30 yeah. years later. Right. And I think of that as, as novels that I've read, that I, I read some novels a couple of different times, once, you know, uh, the second time, much later. And you've had so many life experiences since the first time you read the novel that you bring completely different things to the book. And I think seeing a painting is the same way. One of the reasons I I like to go back and to museums and see paintings over and over again is because I'm I'm different. And it is amazing the way we change throughout our lives. And what is it that stays the same and what is it that changes? Yeah, it's a great it's a great exercise. I do have my last question, which I ask everybody, but I'm I'm super curious to hear. So, if you were to define beautiful thinking, how would you define it? Well, defining it as thinking about something beautiful to me is sort of mundane, and I would like to say that that beautiful thinking is thinking that takes you to an unfamiliar but pleasant place. Well, that is a great note to wrap up on. I, I want to thank you for your time and your, your work. I mean, I want to I read all your books now. Well, thank you, Caroline. And, and uh, I want to thank you for, for being a fan of Einstein's dreams and for having it mean something in your life. I mean, it's, it's a great gift to me that the book has meant something to you and that you've given it to people. That's a gift to me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you found something that inspires you to think strange, different, new, and beautiful thoughts. This podcast was created and produced by Young and Laramore, an independent agency focused on helping national consumer brands take a stand. To explore more about today's conversation and all of the other thinkers I've spoken to, Check out our blog, The Beautiful Thinkers Project, or follow us on Instagram at The Beautiful Thinkers.